Today's scripture reading is Mark 4, verse 35, through 5, verse 43. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with them, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with the chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about two thousand, rushed down the steep, the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the, their region. And he was getting into the boat. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. <clears throat> and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a man who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. 
She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James, and John the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know of this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Throughout this pandemic, we've experienced quite a bit of disorientation. I remember back in March when all of this was first starting to take off. I wanted somebody who knew what they were doing to just tell me what to do because I was at a loss. And I know I wasn't alone. Millions of Americans were trying to figure out the right way to live in a pandemic, and very few had any relevant knowledge and experience to this effect. And as we rushed to our screens every day for the latest information, a voice soon emerged. Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Fauci became an authoritative voice on COVID for many Americans. We have seen the slogan even appearing on social media, trust the scientists, because people are desperate for hope and direction in this situation from some authority. However, there were also many Americans who resisted and continue to resist everything coming from Dr. Fauci and other scientists. The whole conversation concerning infectious disease prevention unfortunately became political theater and a subject of debate. And if you look at this debate from a a different angle, what you will see is that this, this is really a struggle over the idea of authority. Where exactly is the locus of authority here? 
Should it be the case that each American functions as their own authority in terms of response to the pandemic? Or should American citizens submit to higher authority with demonstrable expertise in such matters? It's obvious where many of our DC neighbors stand on this issue. In fact, the idea that every American should function as their own scientific authority in this pandemic is not only crazy to many of our DC neighbors, but it's dangerous. These neighbors would say, look at the facts of science. Look at the supporting data. There is no good reason to ignore it. They believe in the authority of the sciences so firmly that they put up their creedal signs in their yards that say, we believe science is real. Now, of course, the irony here is that this same logic, when applied by Christians to Jesus Christ, is viewed as unthinkable by these same neighbors. But in his gospel, Mark the Evangelist is making the case that when humanity was trying to figure out the right way to live in the world, this fallen world, an authoritative voice emerged. Mark is telling us that we should trust in Jesus because we are all desperate for hope and direction from some authority as we try to navigate this world. If he were here with us today, Mark would say that the idea that each person should function as their own spiritual authority is not only crazy, but dangerous. And through his gospel, he is saying to us, to you and I, look at the facts of his earthly life and ministry. Look at the supporting data. There is no good reason to ignore it. So this morning, we're going to continue through our series in Mark's gospel entitled, Follow Me as we explore the authority of Christ. And we're going to look at this text through two points as we see the fact of Christ's authority and the focus of Christ's authority. So let's look at our first point, the fact of Christ's authority. Up to this point in his gospel, Mark the Evangelist has been carefully crafting the narrative by laying in different themes and bringing out different characteristics of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And in this segment of his gospel, Mark brings together a number of scenes to demonstrate the fact of Christ's authority. Mark doesn't present the authority of Jesus as merely his opinion. He, he's not just offering his personal impression of Jesus. He ties together these episodes, he drops them on our doorstep like an Amazon package, and he says, look at him. What are you going to do with him? One crucial thing that we must remember as we read Mark's gospel is that this book is primarily based upon the eyewitness testimony of the Apostle Peter. In addition... Mark includes personal names of people, like Jairus, and insignificant details that don't move the plot along, like the additional boats out in the storm. And what this means is that 
this actually reads very differently than a fabricated tale of a fiction author. In fact, New Testament scholars agree that the presence of these details, these insignificant details in the narrative that don't move the plot along, this is actually very strong evidence of eyewitness testimony from those who were actually there to witness the events. Think about it. Mark's gospel was written in the late 50s, early 60s AD. And for perspective, that's like somebody writing a history about the events of 9-11 today. Think about how vividly people remember their personal experience of 9-11. You probably have your own story and you have vivid memories yourself if you were alive at the time or you weren't in elementary school. Um, but think about it this way. Mark's gospel was written within living memory of the events that he is recounting. In other words, the eyewitnesses were still alive when he wrote. The, the things that Mark wrote, the names of the people that he includes in the story, those people were still alive when his gospel came out. The eyewitnesses, the people and places named in Mark's gospel, like Jairus, the country of the Gerasenes, the Decapolis, the communities involved in these scenes, like the pig herders and the people that they gathered, the mourners at the home of Jairus who knew a dead body when they saw one. All of these people and all of these places, they didn't just disappear after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For at least a generation, they were available to anybody who was looking for information to verify the claims of early Christians concerning the person and work of Jesus. So in this segment of Mark's gospel, we must understand that Mark is presenting the fact of Christ's authority. He's not presenting a mythology. These are not mythological stories in Mark's mind. What Mark is doing is he's dealing with eyewitnesses He's getting their accounts of the things that they experienced with Jesus. He's taking those eyewitness accounts and he's putting them together into a coherent story about Jesus Christ. He's presenting a, an authoritative Jesus. And this is important. You know why this matters? This matters because Christians and non-Christians alike often have a very different Jesus in their heads than the Jesus of Scripture. They have a reductionistic Jesus at best, who does not fully square with the full picture that we get from Scripture. And it's, it's critical for you and I to actually deal with the real Jesus according to the eyewitnesses of his earthly life and ministry. In the early planning stages of Mosaic, I used to do street interviews with people in our neighborhoods to get an accurate sense of what people in our place were thinking about God and about spirituality and about the church and all kinds of other things relevant to our work. And when my interview question one day was, what do you think of Jesus? I got some insightful perspectives. These were some of the responses that I got to that question. Jesus was a great moral example. Jesus was a political revolutionary. Jesus was a good teacher who taught us how to be more civilized and accepting of others. 
Jesus was a messenger of hope and love. Jesus was a spiritual man with important things to say. Jesus was a super smart person, but just a human like you and I. Jesus was a good guy. These are the representative thoughts of our neighbors concerning Jesus. And anybody familiar with the teachings of Scripture can see that these are incomplete to the point of misrepresentation. But a similar series of interviews among self-proclaimed Christians would yield results that would not be much better, to be honest with you. Just look at Pew Research concerning professing Christians if you need a little extra heartbreak in your life. But here's the deal. In this segment, Mark presents Jesus as authoritative. We see in this text that when Jesus flexed his authority, those present were struck with reverential fear, with astonishment, and with a very keen sense that they clearly had no idea of the magnitude of who they were dealing with. Jesus' authority is the characteristic that left the most lasting impression on his followers. But the greater challenge with discussing this idea of authority in our modern context is that nobody's too keen on talking about spiritual authority, let alone submitting to spiritual authority. But Mark would have us pay attention to the focus of Christ's authority, which brings us to our second point, the focus of Christ's authority. I don't think there is much doubt that when we modern people hear the word authority, we draw negative associations. Much of this has to do with our Western Enlightenment culture that is deconstructionistic and often radically skeptical of authority and tradition. After all, the Enlightenment was a time of increasing knowledge and breaking free from religious authority. So why would we go back? So goes the thinking. Another one of the reasons why we draw negative associations with authority is because we've witnessed dreadful expressions of authority. We've seen authority abused, many of us. We have seen authority used to manipulate and cause harm. We've seen authority leveraged to commit genocide and extinguish human flourishing and freedom. This is why it's so important that we look at the focus of Christ's authority, how he expresses his authority. And what we will see over these passages is that Jesus uses his authority to protect his people, to mature his people, to bring his people to their senses, to heal his people, and to raise his people up. His authority is absolutely filled to the brim with goodness. If you look at the first scene in our segment, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41, you'll see that this first scene gives us Jesus getting into a boat with his disciples to cross to the other side. And a terrible storm arises on the sea. And Jesus is asleep while this all develops. But the disciples are in a panic 
because their boat is filling with water. Now, these were fishermen. They had seen storms before. They, they weren't being just frightful. Just, just they, weren't, they weren't being chickens. They knew what a real storm was on that sea, and this was the mother of all storms. And they finally get to the point that they believe that they're going to die. So they awaken Jesus in a panic, and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Jesus then uses his authority to answer that question. He gives that, that question a definitive answer in the way that he uses his authority after that. He merely speaks the word to the winds and water. Again, he speaks the word to the winds and the water. And the wind stops and the sea becomes like a sheet of glass. Do you see how Jesus uses his authority? He uses his authority to calm the fears of his people in the face of the most terrifying realities. He uses his authority to confirm in their hearts that so long as he is present with them, they are free from terror and the things that are out of their control, like pandemics and elections, for example. And we need to take their testimony to heart. After they witness the authority of Jesus, they say, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The, the, the Greek text is actually very strong in communicating their astonishment and their reverence and their, their, their utter, like, we don't know what to do with him. Like, who in the world did we think we were following? Who, who did we think we were dealing with? Does this, does this Jesus look anything like the Jesus described in the street interviews? No. He's not the quaint, tame, nice guy fabricated by American pop culture. But when he flexes his authority, his people are simultaneously protected, and pushed to more mature thinking about who he is and what he's up to in the world. You see that in the text. When he flexes his authority, it yields good for them. But if we move to the next scene, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, when they get to the other side of the sea, it's nighttime. The time when evil spirits were thought to exercise the greatest power. And as soon as they step out of the boat, a demon-possessed man comes running towards them. And I'm sure the disciples are like, really, Jesus? Really? We just had to deal with this terrifying storm. Now we got a crazy demon-possessed man coming at us. Man, you got to do something. You got to chill our lives out, man. This is getting crazy, right? Could you imagine being one of the disciples there in that moment? Right after you get off, your nerves are already shot because of the storm. Then you get off the boat and there's a crazy man running out of the graveyard after you. These are scary, unusual things. They just get out of the perfect storm and now they have this demoniac running to them. But Jesus doesn't even flinch. This demon-possessed man is described as being a terror that nobody had the strength to subdue. 
He has superhuman strength. He lives among the tombs. And he was screaming wildly all the time and cutting himself. Self-harm. But when this man sees Jesus from afar, he takes off running toward him. And when the man gets to Jesus, the text says that he falls down at Jesus' feet. And what's interesting is that the Greek words that's the Greek word that's used, proskuneo, is the word that we use for worship in the scriptures. The word that's used, it's translated worship, is the same word that's used as it relates to the man falling at Jesus' feet. And this man falls at Jesus' feet and he cries out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, everybody in the first century who would have who would have heard this, they would have understood what was happening here. The, the demon was trying to appeal to an authority higher than Jesus, the Most High God. In, in the process of exorcisms at the time, it was known that if you wanted to, to cast out a demon you would or an evil spirit, you would appeal to a spirit higher than that spirit to kick them out. Well, the demons tried to do this to Jesus. They tried to appeal above Jesus' head no dice. No dice. They are not able to appeal to an authority higher than Jesus. Jesus cannot be outranked. Jesus then asks, what is your name? And then the terrifying response comes back. My name is Legion, for we are many. Imagine the disciples back here thinking, oh Lord, Jesus. Legion? You know what a legion is. The Romans had legions in their armies, and a legion referred to somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 soldiers. So we don't have to take this literally in terms of how many demons are possessing this man, but we get the sense that this is a whole lot of demons that are possessing this man. They're, they're, the forces of evil are compounded within this man. And here Jesus stands in confrontation with this, with this collected power of evil that is, that is ruining this man's life. The text tells us in verse 12 that despite the fact that there was this great collection of evil spirits in this man's life, the text tells us, look at verse 12. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Verse 13. So he gave them permission. Do you see this? The forces of evil have to ask Jesus for permission to go where they want to go. Just like a teenager has to ask their parents for permission to get the keys to the car. That's the kind of authority that Jesus has. You see this in the text. There are these subtle ways that, that we're seeing the heightened authority of Jesus as he confronts the powers of evil that are ruining the life of this man. And then the man who could not be subdued, who broke chains and inflicted harm on himself, and the many demons tormenting this man, they're all begging Jesus is giving them permission on where they may go 
after he evicts them from this man's life. Do you see the authority of Jesus here? Do you see what Jesus does with his authority in this text? Jesus flexes his authority against the evil within us that causes us to harm ourselves. The many, the many demons that this man had are no match for Jesus. Jesus evicts every single demon from this man's life. And I know I got someone with a testimony out there about how Jesus has evicted your demons, how he has addressed your demons, the things that have plagued you, the things that have beat you down, the things that have ruled and ruined your life. Jesus has flexed his authority over those things for your good. This is how Jesus uses his authority. When Jesus flexes his authority, he doesn't take away our freedom. He actually expands our freedom and brings us to our senses. And that's many people's concern when it comes to the conversation about authority. Because in our minds, as modern people, we don't have any distinction between authority and authoritarianism. We think authoritarianism, my freedom is going to be taken. Therefore, authority is bad. No, what we see in Jesus is that when you come under his authority, your freedom is not mitigated. It's actually expanded to its fullest and brightest. That's what happens when Jesus flexes his authority. He uses his authority to bring us out of places filled with darkness and death so that we can experience life in the light. And by the end of the story, Jesus sends this same man, who is now a new man, out on mission. You, you see what Jesus says to him at the end of the scene? He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Can you, can you imagine that man telling that story about that Jesus? Listen, up to this point in your life, you may have had no use for the authority of Jesus. But if you asked that man what he thought of the authority of Jesus, he would break down in tears of joyful praise for the authoritative mercy that found him in the graveyard. Mark continues to develop this thing. If you move on to the next scene in chapter 5, verses 21 through 34, you see that again they cross the sea, and as soon as they get out of the boat, a great crowd surrounds them, and one of the rulers of the synagogue, a man named Jairus, comes and falls at the feet of Jesus and begs him to come and lay hands on his little girl who's knocking on death's door. Again, you see this repeated theme of people falling at the feet of Jesus and begging Jesus. It's this picture of his authority. But this, this man is desperate. And that's the other theme that we see in these scenes, is that Jesus is surrounded by desperate people. But when Jesus uses his authority, he relieves their desperation. He addresses their desperation. He doesn't deepen their desperation. That's what authoritarianism does. It deepens the desperation of those under the sway of that authoritarian rule. But true, beautiful, good authority that we see in the life of Jesus actually addresses the point of desperation. This man is desperate for Jesus to help his little girl who's knocking 
on death's door. So Jesus goes with Jairus. And this great crowd is swarming around Jesus as they're going. And there's this woman, the text tells us, who had some sort of hemorrhage. It's called an issue of blood. It's not that the woman is on her cycle. This is something, it's something that's not right with her health. She's hemorrhaging blood. And she has been for 12 years. For 12 years, this woman has had an issue of blood, a hemorrhage that has caused her to constantly bleed. We're not only told that this issue persisted for 12 years, but also that she had suffered much under many physicians who could not help her. She suffered much under many physicians who could not help her. She tried to go to this thing to deal with her problem. She tried to go to that thing. She tried to talk to friends. She tried to go to to other helpers, but she found no help and she emptied her bank account in the process and she was left in poverty as well. This often happens to those who are in desperate need. Their desperation compounds and then it starts to impact all these other areas of their lives. It's so often the case that the poor are in the situation that they're in not due to any fault of their own, but because they literally have no social safety net. They literally have, no, they cannot afford for anything to go wrong. And when that one thing goes wrong, it causes a, a, a complete toppling of every facet of their lives. That's what happened with this woman. Her medical condition turns into poverty before long. But this woman, she sees Jesus. She recognizes his authority. She's heard the word about Jesus doing things for other people. And she says, if I could just touch his clothes, I will be made well. Did you hear that? If I could just touch his clothes, I will be made well. She is so convinced of the authority of Jesus that she believes that she only has to touch his clothes. That's the kind of faith that she has. So she presses into the crowd and she gets a hold of Jesus' garment and she's immediately healed. One of Mark's favorite words, immediately, immediately she's healed. 12 years healed. That's the kind of authority that Jesus has. But Jesus in some way, knows that power has gone out from him. In some way, it must drain him. He feels that power has gone out, and he turns around to figure out who it was. And the, the woman, the text says, in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She was afraid. And you have to appreciate why she was afraid. She was afraid because as somebody who would have been considered unclean, her issue of blood would have made her ceremonially unclean in the eyes of all of her neighbors. Religiously speaking, she would have been viewed as someone who was always and ever perpetually unclean. And as someone who was unclean, she knew that any other religious leader would have been furious that she touched them 
because she would have rendered them unclean and then they would have had to go through this this extensive ritual in order to get clean again. And so she doesn't know how Jesus, the rabbi, the religious leader, is going to respond to her. She's, she's afraid. Is she going to be publicly shamed in front of this large crowd? Is she going to be outed? In whatever way she might have been able to conceal her, her condition, now she was going to be outed, the word was going to be out, and she was going to be further ostracized and marginalized. She's terrified. She doesn't know how Jesus is going to respond to her. But what is Jesus' response? Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. What? The woman's thinking, what? The, the, the crowd would have been astonished. The woman was absolutely overwhelmed. And do you see how Jesus uses his authority? Not only does he heal the woman, but he lifts her up out of 12 years of shame and insecurity. He affirms her and then he pronounces a benediction of peace over her life. Now, you may not be so keen on the authority of Jesus, but if you ask this woman what she thought of the authority of Jesus, she would have become a fountain of gratitude and love for the way he authoritatively changed her life. But we have to come back to Jairus, chapter 5, verses 35 through 43. We have to come back to Jairus, who by now has got to be overwhelmed with anxiety and concern. They had no time to lose in getting back to his little girl, but this whole episode with the woman was costing them precious time. And verse 35 tells us that his worst fear had come true when a messenger came and told him, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Sit with Jairus for a minute and let the weight of that hit you. Your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any further? Can you imagine it? A parent's worst nightmare. His little girl was gone. There would be no wedding day for her. There would be no grandchildren. He and his wife would have to live with the emptiness, the wound that would never leave them for the rest of their days. But just before Jairus starts to unravel, Jesus shoots him a word in verse 36. He says, it says that Jesus overheard it. And Jesus said to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And then Jesus grabs Peter, James, and John, and they go with Jairus to his house. Now, we don't know what was going through Jairus's mind but when they arrive at his house and he sees and hears the wailing and the mourning, 
and his grief-stricken wife falls into his arms. He's probably mustering every bit of strength that he has to just not fall apart. Jesus empties the house of the mourners turned mockers, and he takes Peter, James, John, Jairus, and his wife to the room where the little girl was laying. Jesus drew near to her. He took her by the hand and he said, Talitha kum, which means something like, sweetheart, it's time to get up. And immediately the little girl got up and started walking around to the absolute astonishment of everyone there. And then, in significant detail, Jesus tells them, go ahead and get her some lunch. <laughs> Do you see what Jesus does with his authority? He flexes his authority over death and he turns the mourning of his people into dancing and he shows us the ultimate trajectory of his authority. It's all flexed and exercised to the end of resurrection hope and resurrection life. Now, you may struggle with the authority of Jesus, but if you ask Jairus what he thought of the authority of Jesus... He might just burst into song and say, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living just because he lives. Jesus gave Jairus a testimony about his authority. And that is what we see in this text. Based upon the focus of Christ's authority in this segment, we see that contrary to popular opinion, the authority of Jesus is good news. Each of these passages leads us to the bigger and broader reality of what Christ has done for us in the gospel. Do you see it? In his authority, Jesus doesn't just show us that he cares for us by calming the circumstantial storms in our lives. He showed us that he cares for us by calming the storm of God's judgment against us for our sin and speaking peace and stillness over us. In his authority, Jesus deals with the evil within us. We no longer live among the tombs because we are united to the one who walked out of the tomb. And we share in his resurrection power and his resurrection hope. The authority of Jesus is good news. In his authority, Jesus has not only healed us of the infirmities of sin, but he has lifted us up out of years of shame and insecurity. He affirms us as his beloved, and he has pronounced his benediction of peace over our lives. This is what Jesus does with his authority and his good news. And finally, in his authority, Jesus has given us the promise of resurrection hope. 
He has turned our mourning into dancing. And we now have confidence that Jesus has typed new heaven and new earth into the GPS of this world. Now, I know our neighbors struggle with authority. But, but if anybody asks you what you think of the authority of Jesus, you, you, you better know that you have a testimony of what he has done for you. You have good news to share about authoritative love and authoritative grace and authoritative mercy breaking in on your life. You are yet another character in a series of scenes where Jesus shows his authority, brings his goodness, restores people to life, gives new hope, raises people up out of the muck and the miry clay, gives people hope in a future. You are a living witness of what God does with his authority in Jesus Christ. You have good news to share about authoritative love from an authoritative Savior. In Jesus, we see storm-stilling, evil-evicting, disease-healing, death-defeating authority. And don't let any misuses of authority that you see out in the world, don't let any misuses or abuses of authority that you have suffered under in this world steal this vision of the way that God exercises his authority in Jesus on your behalf. Don't let anyone corrupt your understanding of the goodness of the authority of Jesus over his people. What he's doing with his authority, what he's planning with his authority, what he's changing through his authority, what he's sustaining in his authority. Everything that God is doing in Jesus through his authoritative work, then and now and in the future, is nothing but good news for God's people. May our passage for today be a down payment on future faith and future obedience when Jesus lays his claims upon us. It doesn't matter what happens in two days. The authority of Jesus remains unshaken and everything that Jesus is doing in his authority Right now in the American church, it may be the case that he's sifting us right now. Jesus himself said that he allows the, the, the weeds to grow up with the wheat and he will separate them in the end. It's Jesus that talks about winnowing. He's the one that will separate. It's Jesus who says he'll separate the sheep from the goats in the end. He's not doing that right now. But the call to those who truly are his followers are to submit to his authority, to live under his authority, enjoy your best life under his authority, enjoy the expanse of freedom that is yours under his authority, enjoy the healing, enjoy the resurrection power and hope, enjoy the peace and stillness that he speaks over his beloved as you submit to his authority, as you live under his authority and know yourself to be in that safe place under his authority. Let that that good news, that hopeful word, ring in your souls. Remember that the, the, the fixed date in the life of the Christian, especially the American Christian, the fixed date in our minds is not November 3rd, family. It's about 33 AD. That's the date. That's Good Friday's the date. Resurrection Sunday. That, these are the things that are to mark who we are. 
the Christian calendar has many events on it, but, no, but no, November 3rd is not one of those dates. It's not one of the events in the Christian calendar that's meant to shape us. So let us, as a people under the authority of Christ, live as his people in this world, regardless of what happens two days from now or a year from now, regardless of how quickly the pandemic will end or how long it may take. We're a people that lives under this beautiful authority. So let us live freely. We have seen the fact of his authority. We have seen the focus of his authority. Now let us follow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the, the beauty of this passage. We thank you for the way that you redeem authority in our minds and in our hearts by the way you demonstrated through your son. We give you praise, Jesus, because of your tenderness toward your people, the way that you defend and heal, the way that you restore and evict evil from our hearts, the way in which you bring us back to our senses, the way in which you pour out your resurrection power on us. We are grateful, Lord, and we want more of that. We ask that you would give us the grace to repent for the ways in which we have resisted your authority because in our hearts, we haven't trusted that it's good authority or that it's for our good or that it will yield good for us. Lord, we ask that you forgive us for small views of you, small views of your goodness. Help us to trust that with your authority comes all of the other beautiful attributes of your character, Lord. Your mercy that's everlasting, your steadfastness, your omnipotence, your omniscience, your presence that is with us always and ever. Lord, your authority doesn't come to us separated from who you are and all of your glory and goodness and love. So help us to receive it gladly. Bless your people. Help us to bear witness to the authority that has changed our lives in Jesus Christ. We ask for these things in Jesus' name.